So hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16. Luke writing says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and who brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, which is comforting to know the apostle could get annoyed, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And as you know, uh, that jailer that night became a follower of Jesus. And now, hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul, having described in the verses previous to this, um, his manner of life in advancing the gospel, even in suffering, says this to the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and, and help us not only to understand uh, these words from Paul, but to have them uh, change us, transform us, encourage us, challenge us, and make us more like him. We ask in the sweet and strong name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Captain John Miller 
sat stunned in the waves that rolled on to that beach at Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Everything seemed to move in slow motion. The sounds of war were deafening. Sizzling bullets buzzing past him, shells exploding, and oh, the cries, the screams of dying men. Within moments of leaving the Higgins boats, the, the beach was littered with the bodies of 18 and 19-year-old young men, riddled with machine gun fire or blown to pieces by shells and shrapnel. As he sat there for just a moment, rivulets of blood ran down Captain Miller's face. But it wasn't his blood. Finally, a voice broke through his mental fog. Captain, Captain, what are we going to do now? What are we supposed to do? The call of Captain reminded him that he has a role to play and a mission to accomplish. So he picks up his helmet now full of salt water and blood and, and he moves forward. He organizes men with commands to move forward. They gather together behind a sand dune. They, they get their bearings. They quickly devise a plan. Then each man with his own unique skill and weapon and role to play risks their lives together to shoot their way through a wall of Nazi artillery, artillery fire, finally capturing and clearing, clearing out this enemy fortification. And so they've accomplished the first critical stage of their mission. They've opened a way for their fellow soldiers to get behind enemy lines. That first 20 minutes of saving Private Ryan is brutal. It's hard to watch. But in that film, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks give us a glimpse into what has been called the fog of war. Don't know if you've heard that term. It's, it's a term the military uses to talk about that cloud of uncertainty and confusion that settles on soldiers in the heat of battle. And our military today still trains for moments like that when that fog sets in. I asked... Uh, one of our resident combat veterans, Jim West, to describe that fog of war to me. And, and this is what he said. He said, the fog of war includes a mental fog from stress and exhaustion where you just can't, you just can't think. It includes not knowing where, where the enemy is. You're confused. You, you don't have your bearings. You, you, you don't know where they are. And then it also includes confusing your friends and foes, not knowing whether the person you rush into a building to see is a friend or a foe. And I asked Jim, so how did, how did you guys prepare for the fog of war? And he said, um, well, there's that old military adage, train like you fight and then fight like you train. You practice all the elements of warfare until it becomes muscle memory, where you don't even think about it almost. 
And when you're in the, then when you're in the heat of battle, you will default to your training. And so they put them through drill after drill, preparing them to do what Tom Hanks' character did, preparing them to remember who they are, to remember their mission, to get in sync with their squad, and then to move forward together with courage in the face of fear to accomplish the mission they've been given. And this is the training Paul is giving the Philippians in just four verses. <laughs> Paul is preparing them for the fog of the conflict that he has experienced and that they will experience if they haven't already. He's preparing them for that fog of war by having them train like they're going to fight to do the things that they will need to do when the conflict comes, but to do them now. And so it is with us. We need to be prepared. We need to be training now. And in verse 27, Paul says, only, and, and with that word, he's saying, as for you, as for you people, now so far in chapter one, I've described the adversity and the adversaries that I've encountered as I've worked to advance the gospel. Now as for you, here's what you must be do, do to be prepared because if you haven't already, he says in verse 30, you will be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And we just read about that in Acts 16 when he first preached the gospel to them. And you will be in, engaged in the same conflict that you now hear that I still have as I write to you in chains. The Philippian church began with warfare as soon as Paul and his squad landed there, but little did any of them, including Paul, know that in just a few short years, AD 64, just a few short years after Paul wrote this letter, that a fire would burn a third of Rome and that the emperor Nero would blame that fire on the Christians in the city. He would call them haters of humankind and he would convict them and condemn them for arson. He would dress them in animal skins and then give them to the dogs to be torn apart. He would tie them to crosses and put pitch tar all over them and light them as torches in the night. And he would eventually crucify Peter upside down and chop the head off of Paul. They were in a war already, but they had no idea what was coming. Paul was preparing them for the fog of war to come, and so we too must be prepared. So the training Paul has for these Philippians Mountain Fellowship is the training God has for us. So listen, first, we must know who we are. Verse 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You might notice in, if you have the ESV or another Bible that has a little note there that says, what Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's literally saying, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Paul's saying, you may live in a colony of Rome, 
but remember that you're a citizen of heaven. Later in this letter in chapter 3, he'll say, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding them that first and foremost, they were not citizens of Rome living in a colony of Rome called Philippi. No, first and foremost, they were citizens of heaven living in Philippi. They were a colony of heaven that God had put right in the middle of a colony of Rome called Philippi. They needed to know who they were. They needed to have that identity solid in them as they went into battle. Paul's reminding them, you live in a culture that believes Caesar is Lord, and that is actually what Caesar commanded the people to say and to believe. You live in a culture that believes Caesar is Lord, but the deeper reality is that you are in Christ. You belong to a kingdom that believes that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, Mountain Fellowship, no matter how bad it gets in the coming days, months, years, we have to remember who we are. Mountain Fellowship is a colony of heaven that God has put on top of Signal Mountain. That's who we are. We're a colony of heaven and citizens of it. Secondly, Paul says that you've got to know what your mission is. You not only need to know who you are, but what you're called to do. What is your mission? He says, let your manner of life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So since you're a citizen of heaven, now live as a citizen who is worthy of the gospel. We have to remember that we get so used to this word gospel and, and it means good news and it just, it just loses its flavor to us. But in that day, a gospel was not just a Christian thing. A gospel was an announcement of good news um, that would be heralded throughout cities and, and, and lands that the people's king had been victorious in battle, that he'd conquered their enemies and that now all of his subjects who were in his kingdom could enjoy the benefits of his victory. It was a proclamation of that good news, of that good story, of what their king had done. And that gospel or good news was proclaimed to the citizens of the kingdom so that they could rejoice in it and live their lives according to it. And that's what it means to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. That word worthy means to fit with, in accordance with. Um, So we live as citizens who fit the good news of the gospel, who fit that story. We live as citizens who fit the story of Jesus as, as one who lives in the story that's been announced to us that our great king has conquered our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death, and he's therefore conferred a new, new way of life upon us, and that he's coming again to give us that life in all of its fullness. So think of it this way. We might say, we might say this, and I'm going to embarrass a few people, but you have to love me. So we might say, we might say, Mary Ann Herzog, 
lives a life that fits the gospel. Kevin and Paige Thompson live a life that fits the gospel. Jax Flinnegan lives a life that fits the gospel. Eden and Lola and Gracie May, they live a life that fits the gospel because they love the story of Jesus and they, they continue to want to learn the story of Jesus. Why? So that they can live in the story of Jesus. And when they do that, they fit the gospel. They live a life that's worthy of it. And of course, to claim to live in the story of Jesus in Philippi and in Signal Mountain is an offense to the powers and gods that be. After Paul left Philippi, um, he went to Thessalonica, and in Acts 17, those people accused Paul and his team of acting, quote, against the decrees of Caesar, practicing another king, saying his name is Jesus. So to live a life that is worthy of the gospel is to practice another king whose name is Jesus. He's the king we practice. And so Paul tells us to know who we are, to know what our mission is. It's to live in the story of Jesus, King Jesus. And he tells us that we must be ready for that fog of war that will come. And so even now we must do another thing. We must drill it into our hearts that we know who our friends are. Remember Jim said that in the fog of war, you start to confuse your friends and your foes. He told me a story about someone who burst into a house, saw a woman standing there with a broom, and in the fog of war, this person thought it was someone holding a gun, and he shot her. It's easy in the fog of war to confuse our friends and our foes. So we have to know who our friends are. And Paul talks about that. He says that we should stand firm with and strive together with our fellow citizens of heaven. In verse 27, he says, standing firm in one spirit and in one mind. That means to act together, Mountain Fellowship, as one person who has the same heart and the same purpose. And that purpose is striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, the faith of the gospel. And so the imagery that would come to mind for the Philippians as they read what Paul was saying would be, what are the soldiers they see? They see Roman soldiers who are arranged in Groups, one of those groups would be what's called a centuria of 80 Roman soldiers. And they would have seen them aligned together with their shields that were about the size of a half of a door and a little curved made out of strong wood wrapped in leather to extinguish um, fiery arrows. And they would have seen them lock their shields together. If you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, I think you see a scene like that. And Russell Crowe even says, lock shields! And they all stand together, locking shields. 
And the purpose of that locking of shields was not only to protect them from the onslaught of the enemy, but also so that they could move forward into the enemy's territory. That's what Paul is talking about, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel together, locking our shields together. Standing firm and striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. We stand firm by unifying in the good news about Jesus, in the story of Jesus, by striving together for the good news about Jesus. So friends, Jesus is what unites us in our fellowship and in our mission. Jesus is what unites us. I know, I know you're thinking, well, of course. But is that true of us? Does, is Jesus what unites us in our fellowship and in our mission? Not our political persuasions. They're fine, but that's not what unites us. Not our favorite football teams. Fine to have your favorite football teams, but if we're going to divide over that, then we've lost that our unity is in Christ. It's not our opinions about the coronavirus. That's not what unites us. It's our fellowship in Christ. If our deepest identity is that we are in Christ, we are united with Jesus, then that also means we are united with one another, with all who are in Christ. We fight for the gospel. That's literally what that word striving means, to fight for, fight together for something. It's fighting for the gospel, not with each other. And so Mountain Fellowship, your elders, uh, when we met a few Saturdays ago, this became something that we wanted to urge all of us to remember, that our unity is in Christ. And in these coming days when so many things are pulling at the church, wanting to separate us, we have to stay unified in Christ. In fact, we... We worked hard together that, that day to come up with what do we think Mountain Fellowship most needs in the next six to nine months? As we look at where we've been in the last six months, how things are going, what's coming up over the horizon in the next one to two to three to six months, what do we need most? So after a few hours of just talking and hammering this out, this is what we, this is kind of our, our goal for the next six to nine months, and we want you to join us in it. And here's how we set it. Our goal is to refresh our fellowship by unifying in Christ. To refresh, which indicates that we feel like there needs to be a refreshment of our fellowship and we're going to do that together by unifying in Christ. And so uh, we started thinking through some specific ways that over the next six to nine months that we and the staff are going to work together to encourage us and help us participate in some specific things to do together to unify in Christ specifically, to remind ourselves that we are 
standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the first of those is a call to prayer. We're going to pray for unity, specifically. I know you pray about all kinds of things for Mountain Fellowship, but we are going to call you officially, and you should receive it in the next week, an official call to prayer that asks that we would all, in the next six to nine months, continue to pray for unity in our body and in the church in Signal Mountain, Chattanooga, and the nations. And so here's a prayer that you can pray that we as elders and staff have already been praying for a couple of weeks. Lord, refresh our fellowship by unifying us in Christ around his gospel and by his spirit. Lord, refresh our fellowship, mountain fellowship. Refresh our fellowship by unifying us in Christ around his gospel and by his spirit. Would you do that? Because when the fog of war comes, we need to know who our friends are. And then finally, Paul trains them to know who their foes are, to help them to discern between friends and foes. He says in verse 28, not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And we have to remember that when Paul is talking about their opponents, we know from Ephesians chapter 6, he's not talking about flesh and blood. He says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood people, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're not wrestling, our opponents are not people, they're the powers at work in and through people. In, Norm in Normandy in July 1944, a German private was guarding some American prisoners, and the German soldier asked his prisoner, his American prisoner, why are you making war against us? And the GI answered, we are fighting to free you from the fantastic idea that you are a master race. We are fighting to free you from the lie that you're a master race. Friends, in that same way, we are not fighting with people, but for people. We are fighting to free them in Christ from the lie that they are masters and he is not. But to announce this story that Jesus is king and they are not, will take courage, Paul says. He says, I don't want you to be frightened in anything by those powers of darkness who oppose you. Jim West told me that the Marines taught him that courage is not the absence of fear. Everybody's afraid. Courage is moving forward with the mission in the face of fear. And what will give us courage is knowing that 
our opponents are not people, but the dark powers behind them, and that the destiny of those dark powers is destruction by Jesus, while our destiny is salvation in Jesus. That should give us courage. Paul says that what should give us courage is knowing that their defeat and our deliverance are from God. So we can move forward among our neighbors and the nations and the next generation Mountain Fellowship. We can move forward with the story of Jesus. We can move forward with the good news about our crucified King and living Lord with confidence that he will call people into his kingdom through our retelling the good news about his life and death and resurrection. He will do it if we will tell it. Pastor Brian Chapel recounts how at the end of Spielberg's epic Saving Private Ryan film, the elderly Private James Ryan kneels in a cemetery in Normandy, France, surrounded by his family, kneeling by the grave of Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks. And as he kneels there, he weeps. Some 60 years earlier in World War II, Captain Miller, along with seven others, had given their lives to save Private Ryan, the youngest son of a mother who had already lost three sons to the war. James Ryan says to his wife in tears, have I been a good man? Have I been a good man? Have I lived a good life? For 60 years, he had lived under the crushing weight of what Captain John Miller told him with his final words before he died. He looked at Private Ryan and said, earn this. Earn this. Earn what we have done for you. What did that mean? What would it require for him to earn the sacrifice of Captain Miller's life? Captain Miller had explained it earlier in the movie. He said, he better be worth it. The one we save, he better go home and cure a disease or invent a longer-lasting light bulb or something. What Captain Miller said was, you better be worth what I'm doing for you, what we've done for you. And friends, sometimes that's that's what we think Jesus was saying to us when he died on the cross. You better be worth what I did for you. You better earn this. And friends, that's not the gospel. Too many of us live as if we're standing at the foot of the cross and watching Jesus in his last breath say, earn this. And maybe, maybe all you've heard from me this morning sounds like just one big pep talk from Pastor Jimmy, and Jimmy's just trying to get you something to do something that you don't really want to do. It's just something you have to do. I have to remember I'm a citizen of heaven. I've got to know my mission is the gospel. I've got to be nice to other Christians and not say nasty things on Facebook to them. I've got to... <sighs> 
Have courage. That's not what I'm saying. Listen to what Paul says in verses 29 and 30. Paul says, not that you have to earn this, but it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul said, it has been granted to you. That's a gift of God's grace. You can't earn this. It's been given to you. It's not a have to, it's a get to. And what has been granted? It's been granted that you should believe in him. The fact that you even believe in Jesus is a gift that he's given you, that he's granted you. You didn't earn that. Jesus earned it for you. It's not a have to believe in Jesus, it's a get to believe in Jesus. It's not a have to believe in the story that I've been told through Paul and others about what Jesus has done. It's, I get to believe it. I can't believe that, I'm even, that I even know it, that he even allows me to know this. What else has been granted? It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to me as a gift that I should suffer for his sake? Absolutely. Paul will say later in chapter 3 that we can share in his sufferings, becoming like Jesus in his death. It's been granted to us as citizens of the colony of heaven to not only believe in Christ, but to become like him. That's the gift. The suffering part's not the gift. The becoming like Jesus in our suffering, that's the gift. It's been granted to us not only to believe in Jesus, but to become like him, even through suffering. And what was Jesus like when he came and lived as a citizen of heaven on earth? Jesus knew who he was. He was the son and the servant of the father. He had been sent by the Trinity. Jesus knew what his mission was, was to practice and to preach the good news of the kingdom. Jesus knew his, who his friends were, his friends the Father, and the Holy Spirit. He stood firm in one spirit and one mind with the Father and the Spirit to accomplish their mission. They strived together to advance the good news in and through his disciples and his church, and they're still doing that. And Jesus knew his foe was a defeated enemy, and so with humble courage, humble courage, Jesus became obedient to the point of death on a cross even in the face of the anguish that he felt about it. Jesus has already lived as a perfect citizen soldier in the fog of war, in your place. He's already done it for you. So you don't have to live a life worthy of the gospel in the sense that you've got to earn it. No, because it's a get-to. You don't have to, you get to. 
because he did it for you. And now he lives in you. That Jesus lives in this church. What would have happened if instead of earn this, Captain Miller had looked at Private Ryan and said, live like this. Live like this. You don't have to earn the sacrifice we made for you, Private Ryan. You can't. We give it to you as a gift. We granted you life. We granted you life so that you could give it for others the way we've given ours for you. Now go, live like this. Lay your life down for the sake of other people. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning, Mountain Fellowship. You don't have to live this way. You get to live this way. Because I, Jesus, lived and died and rose again for you. It's finished. Now go live like it's true because it is. You don't have to live this kind of life to get me to love you. Live this kind of life because I have loved you and because I now live in you. Father, would you make that true of this colony of heaven on Signal Mountain? Make us a people who look at these exhortations, these commands from Captain Paul, and we, we don't look at them and go, oh, do I have to? We look at them through you, Jesus, and we go, no, we get to because the spirit of that Jesus lives in us. In each of us individually, in, in us corporately as a congregation. By your spirit, Lord Jesus, refresh our fellowship. Unify us in Christ, even as we come together, even if <laughs> in a distance way around this table in a moment. By your spirit, let us live as citizens of heaven in Signal Mountain. In Christ's name I pray, amen.